Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive youth athletes, survivors of abuse, and their families who are dealing with abusive authority figures. This podcast is for anyone who is fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. I really hope that you enjoy the contents of each episode, but remember, it is never a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes, head on over to my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. And one more thing, don't forget to rate and review the show and leave a comment. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get into the show. Part two of our two-part series discussing and analyzing the Supreme Court decision that was issued on June 21 of this year, 2021, in relation to the case of NCAA versus Alston. Yesterday, we talked about the court's decision as a whole. We talked a little bit about the founding and the history as to the NCAA, how it came about. So today, I was going to say this morning, because it is morning where I am, just outside of New York City, but today I just wanted to finish up putting into context how the NCAA came about. We'll do a recap on the law that is central to the case, and that's the federal statute referred to as the Sherman Act. We'll clarify some of the procedural history, how the case came before the Supreme Court. Next, we'll talk about what were the fears and that the NCAA stated in their brief and that the court addressed directly exactly what is it that the NCAA wanted to protect. We're going to address some of the recent media and the media spin that I have noticed as a result of this case. So many times after the Supreme Court issues a case, each side that supports the litigants will grab a hold of the holding, the decision, and claim victory or an unnecessary defeat by the other party. So we'll look at that and talk about what exactly were there necessarily any huge victories here? Did the court decisively say the NCAA loses and the student athletes win? So we'll talk about some of that spin that's going on right now. And then finally, I'll give my opinion, prediction, and invite your comments as to what, after this decision by the Supreme Court, what is the future? What's the landscape for athlete compensation? What can we expect as far as state legislation that may or may not fill the void? And what should athletes expect in the coming months and years? When we left off yesterday, I talked about how in the 1940s, in the mid-century part of that time, the NCAA was referred to by some experts as the NCAA cartel, that they and their members' schools were able to set and enforce rules and limit the price that they pay the student-athletes. Over the years, the organization has continued to increase and expand. They withhold or allow payments depending on whether you qualify, athletes qualify for 
for a specific bowl game or if you perform, if you're one of the athletes that perform in the, go on to perform in the Olympics, you can get payments, extra payments as to that. And because of this power, because of this ability to grow and expand, the NCAA is really a big enterprise. Its membership consists of over a thousand schools. I think it's 1,100 to be exact, universities and colleges. And they're organized into what we know to be three divisions. Such big competitions as March Madness is worth over $1 billion annually in television deals. The college football playoffs is worth more than $470 million per year. The court also noted that the Southeastern Conference, the football conference, they made more than $409 million in revenue from television contracts in 2017, just in that year. And total conference revenues exceeded their $650 million. When we talk about who is benefiting in this organizational structure, you may assume that it's going to be the individuals in the top offices, the C-suite, so to speak. And your assumptions are correct. The president of the NCAA earns nearly $4 million. The commissioners who run the conferences, they take home anywhere between two to $5 million is what the Supreme Court noted in their opinion. The college athletic directors in, at the different schools and universities on average take in, in salary, a million dollars annually. Top division, the football coaches, their salaries can top $11 million. Some of their assistants, the college football assistants, they make more than $2.5 million. I did a prior episode talking about what the NCAA, the impact that it has when you're forced out and you have to look for another school, you have to transfer. And in that, I noted when we think about what these athletes have to go against. If they push back, if they complain, they're really going up against a machine, an enterprise, as described by the court. These coaches, many of them, they are the highest paid state employee, making more than the governor's state legislatures and judges combined. So there is definitely a lot at stake when you're trying to interrupt a system. And the NCAA is a system. Recapping the law that was in question here, it's in particular Section 1 of the Sherman Act, a federal law. And that law prohibits undue restraint of trade. It required some of the questions that that were brought up in the case under that act is um, what is required and what access did the student athletes have, rather what was being restrained? Let me say that again. The questions were what markets, what was being restrained? Was there competition that was being restrained? And the court found that the analysis that has to be done under the Sherman Act is based on and depends in particular on the unique circumstances of each case. In looking at the analysis, the different tools or what the court used, it's called the rule of reason analysis. And what the NCAA, what they wanted the court to use is another analysis, which was quicker. It was a less of a deep dive into the Sherman Act. And that's what they were urging the court to follow. The Court of Appeals, when we talk very briefly, I'll recap the procedural history. So the, this case has been going on for several years. The litigation has been pending, going back and forth between the different parties, making up the NCAA and other organizations. The lawsuit was brought by current and former athletes in the Division One 
football and basketball, male and female student athletes. It started in the federal district court. It found its way up to the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And then the NCAA, in this current decision, they or this current case and decision that was handed down, it was the NCAA who were the petitioners, or they sought a writ to come before the court to present certain questions. Now, what happened in the lower court is that the district court issued an injunction. And that's just an order. It's a mandate. It's an edict, so to speak, saying that one party cannot do something. So, and you have the ability, if you're one of the parties to that type of injunction, you can come back, you can make an application back to the court that issued the injunction asking for clarification. The court noted, and there was one instance where the NCAA did come back to the district court asking for clarification, but they didn't do that again. Instead, what they did is that they sought questions, clarifications, and ruling in their favor at the Supreme Court level. What were the fears of the NCAA. Why did they come back to the Supreme Court? Why did they file this petition? The Supreme Court noted, and when I say fears, many times when attorneys make arguments, when they use case law, when they use analysis, reasoning, persuasion, really they are wrapping that type of discussion into what they fear, what they don't want to happen. Court, judge, side with me, because if you don't, horrible things may take place. There may be events and circumstances that the judges don't foresee if you don't rule in our favor. The court found some of these fears that were articulated by the NCAA and the reason why they wanted, they were urging the court to agree with them. It said, the court said, the NCAA fears that schools will use internships as a way to circumvent limits on payment. So I should preface this by saying that one of the main arguments that the NCAA was advancing and they were trying to persuade the court is that we, the NCAA, should not be subject to the analysis subject to the federal law, the Sherman Act. We should basically be allowed to make rules, restrict the market as we see fit because one, these athletes are amateurs and two, this is higher education. And in essence, and I'm really summarizing this, in essence, we are promoting higher education. That's our goal. And we shouldn't have to be subject to these federal laws that our market is special and unique. And because of that, we should be allowed to restrict different compensations that the athletes will get. So in breaking out these fears, as I was just saying, the NCAA was saying that, look, court, if you don't allow us unfettered ability to restrict types of compensation, then this is just going to turn into the wild, wild west, so to speak. Schools are going to be doing all types of unprecedented activities and ways to work around not necessarily giving out cash payments, but they're going to find other ways to compensate student athletes that contradict our stated goal. I disagree with what they're saying their real goal is, but the goal that they're advancing before the court, which is just to let these athletes have a good experience, you know, play a little basketball and football and, you know, get a great college education. That's really our goal. We know that 
the facts and the evidence speaks directly against what the NCAA is saying. So they're saying, no, you got to give us unfettered ability to regulate and to control our market, the market for student athlete labor. Because if we don't, our member schools, they'll just use things like internships to get around our limits. The NCAA even imagined that boosters would have internships, quote unquote, internships at maybe a sneaker company or an auto dealership, and they will give out extravagant salary. So it would just be a front. That's what the NCAA was saying, that if you don't agree with us, you're going to have, you know, Tom Smith Ford dealership hire out a player and, you know, just as a way to circumvent NCAA laws, they'll pay him some crazy salary, a million dollars, which extravagant for a student athlete. Some of the other fears that they were saying is if you don't allow us the ability to control this market, that not only will there be ways to get around this, but you'll end up with individuals getting cars and benefits that were not intended and not a part of this academic and amateur experience. The court found is that neither at the level of the district court or at the appellate court, there wasn't any evidence, there wasn't any reason to believe that if the court used the Sherman Act and used the proper analysis, that the NCAA would be restricted from issuing and enforcing unwarranted compensation. In fact, the court said that at the district court, their decree and the district court's decision would actually allow a school to pay players. Another argument that the court addressed and the NCAA said was one of their fears is that the district court's decree or decision would allow the schools to pay players thousands of dollars each year. And the students would only have minimal academic achievements, like just maintaining a passing GPA. In other words, another way that schools would get around, member schools would get around the limits and the regulations of the NCAA is, you know, hey, student athlete, just do your bare minimum. And by doing that, we're going to reward you heavily with incentives and with money. Again, the court rejected this argument and said that there's no evidence that the lower court, the district court, that their injunction said that. In fact, the Supreme Court repeated over and over again that the injunctions at the lower court and at the appellate court upheld actually provided great leeway and an ability for the NCAA to do what it's always been doing. And we'll come back to that point when we talk about really tempering what's out in the news as to who's been victorious, who lost, because in more than one point in the Supreme Court's decision, they stress that there has been nothing, there's been no ruling in either the district court, the appellate court, or through the Supreme Court's decision that takes away the wide leeway and the ability that the NCAA has to regulate its member schools and athlete compensation. Here's a third argument and or fear that the NCAA advanced in their written briefs to the Supreme Court. They said that they feared that the decision of the lower court would allow schools to provide in-kind educational benefits 
Here's an example. They said that they feared that schools would offer scholarships for graduate degrees, vocational schools, and pay for things like computers or tutoring. Said another way, so the NCAA feared that schools would exploit and give students luxury cars to get to class, and all of these things would be unnecessary compensation. The court rejected this again. The court said, There's nothing, nothing in either the district court ruling or the appellate court, which were upheld. There's nothing that stops the NCAA in those rulings from enforcing the quote unquote, no Lamborghini rule. So these fears were unfounded. In fact, nothing in the court decisions even gave the NCAA a reason to believe that their powers were going to be restricted. And in fact, the court opinion, and from what I read, it still seems that the NCAA has wide girth, leeway, and ability to control and regulate athlete compensation. The most poignant part of the decision was for me when the Supreme Court, when they wrote that NCAA, we're not going to give you this pass. You're not going to be immune. We're not going to judicially ordain you and give you the right to be immune from scrutiny under the Sherman Act. That you too are subject to the controls and the restrictions that the Sherman Act put on unlawful activity in the markets. And you're going to have to, if there's going to be some type of complaint filed against you, if it's valid, you're going to be brought into court and you're going to be subject to the Sherman Act. That, to me, was one of the main points of this holding. The court went on to read that, in essence, and I believe the decision speaks very much to this, to just reiterate to the NCAA that you are overreading the injunctions that were issued in the lower court. And in fact, the NCAA is free to forbid in-kind benefits that are not related to the student-athlete education. Okay, I'm going to say that again, that really, in essence, the NCAA is doing an overread. Their fears are unfounded. And in fact, there's nothing in the court's decision that's going to forbid you from regulating, from restricting in-kind benefits that have nothing to do with the actual student-athlete education. That, I feel, is the biggest part of this holding. So then let's go to a spin alert, tempering the media. I was doing a run. I was at the gym and I saw the news come out that the Supreme Court had issued its decision. And immediately CNN, the different networks, they flash on their ticker, the summary. I saw some that said, you know, student athletes, I'm summarizing, student athletes win. The NCAA, you know, loses a summary again. The New York Times uh, reported that the ruling was a milestone for those trying to achieve change in college sports. In their article, the Times went on to say, in a unanimous ruling today, the Supreme Court said that the NCAA, which governs college sports, could not prohibit student athletes from receiving modest educational related payments. And again, it was a milestone for those trying to change the model of college sports in the U.S. And this is what I do think is possible, that this ruling, actually, as I'm saying this, 
I'm taking this back because the New York Times went on to say that the ruling by the Supreme Court could open the door for broader challenges. I guess the operative word in that sentence is could. You can bring a lawsuit about anything, whether it's viable, whether you prevail, whether you'll run up against a motion to dismiss and your suit will be over, whether you want to expend the resources, both emotional and monetary, you know, that's all a question to be debated. Do I really think that an individual that student athletes or other individuals with standing or the ability to bring a lawsuit, they will achieve or be able to advance a case based on this ruling? I'm going to say it's going to be very hard. The court was very specific in their discussions about we're only deciding a very narrow issue. The court, they didn't want to enter into the larger debate that was going on about college sports. They wanted to stay very specific, very narrow in what they were saying and what they were telling the different litigants, the NCAA and the student athletes. And I think they were saying a couple things. One, NCAA, you have misunderstood the rulings of the lower court. You misunderstood the injunction. Nothing takes away your ability to regulate and forbid in-kind contributions that are not related to student education. If you want clarification on this, don't come to the Supreme Court go back to the district court for clarification. Also, NCAA, you are not going to receive some type of full-on hall pass where you're going to be ordained and told that you are not subject to the federal law, the Sherman Act. And also, your fears are unfounded. They're baseless. The NCAA articulated. And also, that we are deciding just a very narrow issue. We're not going to decide whether these athletes are considered considered professionals, whether they're considered amateurs, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take your invitation, NCAA, and join in or agree with your argument that the prior Supreme Court case from the 80s, the Board of Regents, is prevailing and we have to follow that precedent. We're not going to get into that. The court, in fact, this I think this says it well, when the court said the national debate about amateurism in college sports is important, but our task as appellate judges is not to resolve it, nor could we. Our task is simply to review the district court judgment through the appropriate lens of antitrust law. There you have it. We're not going to do more. We're not entering the debate. We're not going to be lured in. That's to be decided by other individuals, but not us. Our task is simply to review the district court ruling and do that through the appropriate antitrust law, the analysis that we talked about, and issue a ruling based on that. That makes me then kind of smirk and wonder how it is that the different spin masters for the television, for the news, that they come up with some of these you know, titles and captions. But I guess, you know, it is the news media, it is business, you have to sell and you have to try to tease out from a court decision, a winner and a loser. You have to kind of write that story. Law 360, which is one of the um, services that follow different cases and they write very much about the legal world. They said that, and I'm summarizing, that court's ruling that it provided great momentum for change and it was going to give life-changing benefits. But I don't see that. Now, it's my hope as being an advocate in this area for competitive youth sports, for athletes, for falling on the side. I have no problem with saying that. For always 
trying to look for and ensure that individuals that are maybe in a position where there's an imbalance of power, that those individuals that they have a voice, they're not being taken advantage of. It's my hope that this decision will be a foundation for change, that student athletes will be compensated more fairly for all of the millions that they generate. I just don't know if it's this case that will serve as that foundation, that will be that springboard for athletes. So what is the future then? What can athletes, what can their parents expect after this ruling? What's coming on the landscape of athlete compensation? Will they be viewed as true you know, contributors to the millions and billions of dollars that are generated? In a prior episode, I talked about, I guess what I was telling you, I talked about some of the salaries of the leadership of the coaches. And one of the friend of the court briefs that were filed was filed by a group of African-American antitrust attorneys who emphasized and who stated that the real losers in college sports were that group of men and women who did not make it to the pros, but then also did not get a quality education. Many times, either they left, had to drop out of school because of run-ins with a coach. Maybe they had to drop out of school due to injury, but they left without completing an education. And then even worse, they graduated, but because of the hours and time that they have to dedicate to training and to playing and to traveling, that they don't have the ability to dedicate that to their studies and prepare them for life after college. Or or they are pushed in to a watered down curriculum where their academics in no way makes them suitable for a job or a career, that those are the athletes, those are the individuals that suffer. That's the change that has to come in this area. And that's what I'm advocating for. So if the spin doctors are correct, and this can in some way lead to reform and lead to better compensation in different ways, you know, not only monetary, but better academics for these athletes, then I'm all for that. I cross my fingers to that. But I see the future and what's happening, what's already happening in several states in Alabama and California. I'm not sure if uh, Oklahoma or Texas I'll have to get a more accurate list. But in so many states, they are preemptively, even before this Supreme Court decision came out on June 21st, they already were enacting local legislation to try to address this whole idea of athlete compensation. And when I read one or two of those proposed or enacted pieces of legislation, I still saw so many avenues and ways that athletes can be exploited. You have to remember the interest of the parties and the interest of the parties. If you have a big school, a huge university system that is relying on the revenue generated by its football and its basketball programs, that's a machine. And guess who's at the bottom of this business model and the machine? It is these athletes and overwhelmingly athletes of color. And so when you have individuals that are writing this legislation, that are debating and considering this legislation, they're really looking at and thinking about their economy 
academies. They're not necessarily thinking about the individual impact that it'll have on the athletes and their lives, their career, and their family 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So are there some good things that I see in some of these local state legislation? Yes, but I still see that there are ways and there's interpretations that will be construed and applied, you know, not to the advantage of student athletes. Now, if you're a student athlete with the family support, with the local support, you have access an opportunity to consult with financial experts, attorneys, you're going to fear okay. You're going to be all right. Not everybody has that access and opportunity to experts, financial and legal. So for those individuals, you're going to have to, you know, seek the counsel, you know, maybe free services. You're going to have to be wary. You're going to have to think about what is your overall objective in signing a contract and pursuing this goal. So those are some of the things that I saw. The landscape. So we know now that this decision has come out, that it's a decision that required the court to analyze the federal law, the Sherman Act, that there was an understanding that there was time given in this decision to discuss the creation, the formation, and the reason for the existence of the NCAA, the revenue it generates, that because of the revenue it generates, because of its structure, it is an enterprise. It does have significant impact impact on markets. And because of that, the fears that were articulated by the NCAA were unfounded. They were not grounded. And in fact, the court found that the lower courts did not restrict, did not do anything that would restrict the NCAA's powers. And in fact, gave them great leeway to continue to regulate in areas that they were already operating in. And in the end, we have to, I'm going to be optimistic. I don't think that there was a clear winner or loser in this case. I think the most accurate media spin was that That was enunciated by the New York Times when they said that the ruling allowed for modest, modest increases in educational related funding. And that was already in existence in so many ways. So I don't think that there was a a huge shift by this court opinion and what's coming in the form of local legislation, what may be certain upcoming concessions by the NCAA that may be good, that may work in favor of athletes. A quick side note. What may happen is that anytime you have a huge system like this, and you can equate this to changes and reforms in other big systems, you know, criminal justice, corporate systems. When when I say corporate, so for example, with, you know, Me Too, women speaking out about harassment at work, discrimination. When you have systems that have existed for hundreds of years and that there's now a pushback by the individuals that generate revenue or are being consistently negatively impacted within the system. When you have that pushback and you have those individuals speaking out, in this case, of course, it's the student athletes who have been working tirelessly for decades as student laborers, not receiving compensation, who are not receiving true sustaining academics that lead to careers, who are leaving the sport with you know, health compromise with injuries, lifelong injuries. When you have those individuals pushing back and rattling and shaking a system, that's change. That's what I see to be significant, that they mounted this war, so to speak, in the court. And they are letting everyone know 
that from here on out, you, the system, you, NCAA, you're being watched, you're being pushed back against. That's what I think is a real spin and the takeaway from this case. So I applaud these athletes. I applaud their attorneys. That's a win for me. And I really support and hope the pushback continues so that the millions, the billions of dollars that are being earned is more evenly distributed and not only the money, but so that we're allowing these athletes to get the education that they deserve so that they can have a long, sustainable life. They can live in integrity and in line with themselves and go on to flourish. It was a true joy getting a chance to talk about this case with you. Please leave your comments, leave your opinions. I'd love to read your opinions on my Facebook page or head on over. You can leave, email me directly. You can go over to the website and have a look around. There's other comments there. There's past episodes at jsaunderslawfirm.com. It was, again, it was a joy speaking with you. Take care and enjoy the rest of your day. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.